Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd, and today we're talking with Christopher Bayes about his book, Discovering the Clown, or The Funny Book of Good Acting. Welcome to the program, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really loved your book, and I'm excited to talk about it. Oh, cool. Um, I Yeah, I thought we'd get started by having you read a selection from your book, um, the, the chapter, uh, Your Fun Owes You Nothing. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Without your fun, the clown will never arrive. And your fun will not come to you without being invited. You must pursue it and give it value, or you will live your life without it, or only stumble upon it accidentally. Call to it. Welcome it. Beckon to it. Invite and pursue it. If you put it in a shoebox under your bed, it will wither away, and you'll find yourself lonely and boring. It's not such a precious thing. Your fun is infinite. Begin to invite your fun into your life all of the time, not just when you're working. Make friends with your fun, and you may find it by your side when you need it. Ignore your fun at your peril, for it will be agonizingly elusive when you are on the stage. Try to live in your body with a little more squirreliness on a daily basis. Be more expressive more often. Exhibit more inappropriate behavior. So here's the homework I give my students. Laugh louder and more often than you think you should in places that seem inappropriate to do so. Sing on the subway. When you miss your train, say, ah, nuts, so that other people can hear you. When you make the subway, say out loud, sweet, so that other people in the car can hear you. Sing stupid little songs about things as you do them. Hello, Mr. Toaster is a good one. Or time to poop is also a winner. Maybe I should stir it. Or do I have to? Works for just about anything. Dance in your car. Swear in the deli. Cry out loud at the movies and keep crying after the lights come up. Don't wipe your face until the tears are done. No pre-wiping. At the grocery store, march right up to the ketchup and sneak a bottle into the mustard section. When you get on the elevator, see what happens if you don't turn around. Just politely ask for your floor's number. Be bold in your growth. Celebrate your audacity. Leave a bit of sparkle behind. All right. That was great. You're like an actor or something. I used to be an actor. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Um, so... I, I thought that'd be a great place to start out because I feel like it kind of exemplifies something that runs throughout your book, which is that clowning seems to be, you know, both a, a practice on the stage and sort of a philosophy that you can bring into acting more generally. Would you say that's mm-hmm. true? Could I would you- say it's true. It's, it's, you know, one of the things I've tried to do in my work and in building a kind of pedagogical arc for my students is to get a little bit more prehistoric about it. You know, to go back to the very first actor-audience relationship and how the architecture of the space works between the performer and the people who sit in the dark, you know, or sit on the risers. And um, so and so in some ways, it feels like we have to relinquish some things that maybe you think are necessary uh, in order to find something that's more, um, I think, grounded and, and truthful. Yeah. So when you say, you said prehistoric, I think, right? Yeah. 
are you talking about like Aristophanes and stuff or, or I'm talking about earlier cave, than I'm that? Talking about cavemen, cave, yeah. I'm talking about cavemen. <laughs> cave and women and cave people. Sure, cave people, All yeah. The cave people. Um, and there is evidence that they were they, they they had stages and stuff, right? Like there are uh, there are cave paintings that show people doing something in front of what looks like an audience, right? There's always that dynamic, you know, after the big hunt and you're having sitting around the fire eating a big hunk of meat and someone makes fun of the guy that's not so smart or somebody makes fun of the of the boss, you know, there's always this is performative social uh, um, social structure that's just, I think, innate. It seems to be, I mean, theater definitely has a history, but I also have always felt like if there was a, a if the bomb dropped today and somehow everybody forgot about theater we'd like reinvent theater next week to talk about the bomb, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I mean, there's... It's just built in. It's built in. There's always the pleasure of the storyteller, you know? Yeah. Um, and then there's something else that that, that passage, I think, uh, brings out, which is the idea of your fun. And mm-hmm. I, I, I get the sense in your book that for you, fun kind of precedes funny, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, just um, kind, of play, it's a kind of pursuit of playfulness, really. Yeah, and it seems like one of the things that people do in your classes that is really, you know, not quite right is that they they try to go for the laugh, right? Sometimes there's, you know, sometimes there's there's that they're going to rather than probably sort of relinquish all of their tools right away. There's always some people who want to just unload the toolbox and see what's going to work, and just kind of out of desperation. Um and once they do that, then we can flag it and say, "Okay, how did that work for you?" and now let's move on. You know, there's all this stuff we put in our toolboxes, particularly like in high school and, and uh, as we're growing up. It's particularly, I think, for the people who consider this, themselves to be the funny ones. There's a lot There's a lot of baggage and tools that come along with it that we try to just gently, like, I, I, I don't want to take them away. I'm just not interested in that. And I'm, yeah. I don't want to necessarily encourage that. Keep it. Fine. That's great. I'm just not. I, that's not where your growth is. Do you think that's what makes clowning so hard for a lot of actors? I've, I've talked to actor friends of mine who say that, you know, their clowning class was like the hardest class they took in school. Yeah, dreaded, often dreaded. <laughs> um, yeah, because you kind of have to jump out of the plane, you know, and you're going to find a bunch of stuff on the way down, but you got to jump. And, you yeah. know, it's, it, takes, it takes a leap of faith to come out onto the stage and try to make people laugh and 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 to be able to try to dissect that and di- into the diagnostic of every you know particular person's relationship to the comic world, they're all particular. You know what I mean? And when I say to you, you got to jump, man, and you, you can decide whether you want to jump off the curb or you want to jump out of the plane. That's up to you. Which is going to be the most fun? Which is going to give you the biggest kick? You know? Right. And you talk about you. Everybody has their own clown that they kind of have to find. Right. It's not even yeah. that they're creating it. It's that it's 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 in them already somehow. Yeah, everybody has one. Everybody has one. It's the playful self. It's the unsocialized self. You know, I hate to, I hate to sort of pin it to a cork board like a beautiful butterfly and define it too much because then you're going to be, you're just going to have an idea of what the goal is rather than allowing yourself to make some bigger discoveries about what you are, what your, like I said, what your relationship to the comic world is, what your relationship is to your fun, what is your relationship to your complete disaster and your tragedy. You know, it demands an investigation of all of those things, you know. And sometimes you got to fall apart a little bit um, in the pursuit of, of something kind of magic, I think. That is, the unsocialized self is really interesting to me. I mean, it, it sounds really terrifying, right? <laughs> like that we think that we have all these guardrails placed up to kind of keep ourselves in check. 
right. you're kind of asking people to knock those down and, and trust themselves, right? Yeah, I think, you know, we can talk about this more, but it, it feels like um, the thing that gets in the way is the socialized self so much, the, the appropriate, the polite, the desire to be cool, the need to be smart and solve everything. You know, we're such, we've become such solvers as we, as we grow up. And so part of the work demands a kind of ungrowing, an ungrowing up. Um, and to try to imagine um, what you would be like. I mean, it's, it's kind of terrifying, but it's also just kind of beautiful and simple. What would you be like, Andy, if you'd never been told no, right? If you'd never been told to sit yeah. still, to be quiet, uh, um, to chew with your, eat with your mouth closed, you know, all of those sort of polite things that, um, that make it easier for other people. You know, it's easy for other people if you're less, right? Which is fine if you want to work in a Walgreens or a bank or sell real estate. But if you want to be an artist, if you want to be an actor and you want to be a funny actor, then it demands that maybe you're going to be a little more. Maybe you need to be a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and that also seems like it kind of suggests what might be really necessary about theater, that if if theater can be the place where people can kind of see that unsocialized self and kind of remind themselves that there's that there's something to them other than just these rules that were taught by society like that. You know that would that seems like a really important thing for people to to remember. Absolutely, absolutely, and and it also feels like um, it, it kind of it kind of reminds us way back way back in our emotional memory. It kind of reminds us what we've betrayed or what we've relinquished in order to fit in. You know, we yeah. all do it. We all betray at a certain point. We all betray our own enthusiasm. I think that's the first big thing that we betray. Because um, that's the first place that the bullies will go in middle school, high school, yeah. grade school. They go for the thing you're enthusiastic about. You know, oh, you're a baby, you like that baby band, or that's just stupid thing, you know. And, and of course, the ones that have been diminished love to diminish the ones that have not been diminished yet. They love it. Because then yeah, it makes, I was, it makes them feel like they have a club of diminished people. I was I was reading that section of your book where you talk about you know the bullies telling you to not like the thing that you like, and I remembered yeah. one of my uncles one time saw me reading a Jack Kerouac book and was like, "Adults don't read Jack Kerouac," and I was like, <laughs> "I felt it, it totally ruined it for me. Like it was a it was the fly in the ointment that right. you know I couldn't really fully commit to reading that book in the same way after that." Yeah, yeah. I mean, just think of those those early bands that you loved, right? And then they not got got to be not cool to like that became like a baby band, you know. If you liked Menudo, yeah. if you liked Backstreet Boys, or if you liked, you know, my first favorite band was Kiss. It was my first yeah. con- my first concert. I was so into Kiss, man. And it was yeah, that Kiss band rules. sucks. That band sucks. It's listening to that. My brother made fun of me for listening to Kiss. And he was my brother, yeah. so I didn't care. But as soon as my other friends started making fun of me, the poster came down. Yeah. You know? That feels like a very appropriate first favorite band for someone who's then made a career as a clown. Yeah, I like the like drama. Had... I like the drama of it. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. But also, they had that sense. Like, I mean, talk about the unsocialized self. I mean, Gene Simmons is was oh pretty God. much exemplifying that idea. Yeah, spitting blood and all that stuff. The flash pots going yeah. off. Oh my God, it was so fun. Yeah, so much theater. Um, yeah, very theatrical. And yeah. the songs were good. Like they, the production was a little corny on those Kiss songs, but like they had songwriting chops. Yeah, yeah. And then they just write the same song over and over and over again. But, but at the beginning, I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. What an amazing anthem, you know. It's really great. Yeah, totally. Hey, if it's not broke. <laughs> yeah. And um, also, and also talk- it, may not, it may not surprise you, I also got really into Elton John. 
Sure. For the, yeah. For the same reason, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. The, um, I, I, yeah, this is getting a little off topic, but I feel like that Elton John movie, at least the sort of first half, really captured how thrilling that is to just have a guy being like, I'm going to wear, you know, giant feathers. I'm going to come on uh, on stage at Yankee Stadium wearing a rhinestone Yankees outfit, you yeah. know, just like, that's awesome. Yeah, dressed as the queen. You know? How controversial yeah, that totally. was. Yeah, yeah. He didn't yeah. give a damn. Yeah. But, and um, he, also, he also wrote some amazing, beautiful songs, you know. Totally. Um. So you, you started talking a little bit about your, your you know, musical interest as a child. Could you talk about kind of how you found your way into, into clowning? Sure. Um, when I was a young actor, uh, I was living in Minneapolis, and um, there's a company there called Theatre de la Jeune Lune. Uh, and it was a company that was founded by four uh, recent graduates of the École Jacques Lecoq in Paris, which was sort of the, um, the, the major school that was investigating Clown, mask, uh, physical theater, comedia, neutral mask, um, and, and, and a lot of pantomime as well. Um, and so they had just graduated from that school and they started a company in Minneapolis and I auditioned for it and they cast me in their first, in the season that they were auditioning for and, um, introduced me to all of this stuff. Um, it was kind of like, it was kind of like theater boot camp because I was coming out of an Uta Hagen, you know, more realistic uh, Stanislavski based training, which always felt a little bit, um, I always felt a little bit like a liar. Like I was, you know, I like I never quite, could never quite drop into that in a way because somehow it was, it was, it was lacking a kind of theatricality that was interesting to me. And um, so I, they introduced me to this clown stuff. I, I, I caught on fire right away. It was like, oh, my God, this, this is what I want to do. Because it was the first time I really felt ownership of my work. Um, in the sense that, you know, the actors are generally the last ones invited to the party. Right? This is what you're going to say. This is the play we're doing. This is what you're going to wear. Uh, you know, this, these, you have to find your light. And you get a 10-minute break every hour and 20 minutes, you know. But you're not involved really in the bigger creative process of making theater. Um, and with the world of the clown, it was just, it's just the clown in the audience. There's nothing else that makes any difference that's important. It's just that relationship. And for me, it was hugely empowering um, as, a young, as a young actor. And so I just began to really investigate it more and more. And the way that, the way that it generally clown is taught in Europe, it's generally taught with a sort of a via negativa. Do you know what that is? Uh, I'm aware of what it means in like mystic theology. Oh, well, it just means that you come on stage and you try something and the teacher says, no, next. And somebody goes, no, next. So you have to really struggle. The teacher's, the teacher's not generally saying, if you do this and this and this, you might be more successful. It's like, you've got to fight for your thing. So it's all the no, 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 no. And, um, I quickly found out that that doesn't work so well, uh, with American acting students. Uh, was that the they- way that Klein was taught? At, um, I'm so I don't know how to pronounce French things, but oh, was that the it, way that it was taught in Minneapolis? In, in Minneapolis, no, but it was based on how how those people had learned it at Jacques Lecoq School. So there yeah. was some of that, and I was like, "What is this? What are we actually looking for?" They're like, "Well, you'll know it when you find it," kind of idea, um, which was challenging. But for me to be able to really investigate and for me to find a way to articulate, aha. Uh-huh, I see you. I see where your catch place is, where you're reluctant to go. I see where you want to go, but where you feel like that's a place of confidence, but that's not interesting at all. Go back to the place that you're, that you're terrified of going. 
right? That's simple, that's open, that's honest, that's vulnerable. Um, and how do we find a way to give your body to that and fill it with fun and fill it with generosity and, you know, find your feet and find your legs and connect your voice to all of those things. And then once the body's really engaged in that way, you can begin to, to explore, um, those parts of yourself that are funny, that not necessarily what you think is funny about you, but what other people think is funny about you, which is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so it seems like you sort of have, you know, you, it's kind of the opposite method in your pedagogy is you kind of try to draw out what's already present rather than hacking away everything that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I no, Yeah. There's some, there's some, there's some schools of thought about acting that they, they have to break you down in order to find yourself again. And I, and I, I don't, I don't buy that. I've had acting teachers who've tried to do that to me and I find it unpleasant. Um, what I'm trying yeah, to do. It seems hugely unpleasant. It's awful. It's awful. Um, I understand it, but it's awful. And so I tried to give, often I say, I'm going to give you a little horse head. I'm going to give you the horse head. You know, the way the the big horses give the little horses just a little nudge with their nose. It's like, go that way. Uh-huh. Go this way. Let's go down. Let's go down that way and see what we find there. Um, see what, see what kind of a little adventure we can go on today rather than, you know, if you know where you're going, it's not really an adventure. Yeah. It's just work. I'm going to it work. Seems, <laughs> it seems crazy to think about, like, how could you be sort of fun and playful and funny in an environment where you're, like, scared? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or when you're just afraid someone's going to hurt you, damage you in some way. Yeah. yeah. And that's sort of the reputation of the, like, French climb schools, Lecoq and, and others is, like, they're just yeah. super intense and... Yeah. and and uh, rigorous. Yeah, Philip Goyer's school is full of that. He, you know, I studied with him for a bit after I've been teaching for a while. And, um, he's he he loves to insult you and call you terrible names in order to make you kind of fight back. And if you don't have the yeah. fight in you, man, if you don't have that fight, it's just you just get trashed. You know. Yeah. So, you know, I understand it, and and I think it may work for some people, but uh, for me, that doesn't seem to it feels it feels counterintuitive to me as as a human being to do that to other yeah. people. Right. Yeah. That seems unpleasant for both sides of that <laughs> equation. Yeah. Um, so you, you talked about, you know, being an actor and kind of training in, in, you know, Uta Hagen and that kind of realist naturalistic acting style. Yeah. Um, it's strange when you're saying that, like, that's actually not really realistic at all, just in the sense of like, you're pretending that you're, you know, uh, uh, some Russian, uh, minor nobility or something whereas in cloud you're really doing it like they're you're, you're not pretending right you're not pretending no it's you it's you yeah it's you and the audience it's it's that that's like i said the, the prehistoric you perhaps but yeah. the playful the one that's really the one that really leads with their hope and it's like oh it's going to be so great we're gonna have a really great fun show today i don't know what it is yet but let's go let's find it it's that, that sort of and like that takes, and that takes a lot of courage you know yeah it's that like let's put on a show in our backyard kind of feeling. Yeah, totally. I had a, a theater teacher once who was who was like, you know, if you're trying to do this as a profession, you got to get rid of that. Let's put on a show in our, in our backyard feeling. And I was like, oh, I don't think I'm going to like this class. Yeah, why? Why? Yeah. That's where it all begins. It's the it's the that's the that's the that's the human impulse to to be make a be- something beautiful to show off a little bit to the storyteller in all of us who wants to illuminate. So even when, as a little kid, you want to illuminate something that's that's part of the human condition. You don't even know what that is yet, but oh my God, you you can feel it and you can chase after it, and that's you know, that's also part of the impulse that makes us want to 
I think live a life in the theater or as are somehow connected to the to the world of the theater because there's magic there when it's when it's at its best. And not Were you like a funny kid? Uh, I got in a lot of trouble because I had a mouth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was I was a wise cracker. And I was always looking for a little way to to you know, stick it to the man. And you you seem to kind of gently discourage wisecracking in your students, right? Or I don't saying the they, clever thing. Yeah, I don't want to hear any clever jokes or little quips or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't want to hear. That's not interesting to me. Um, yeah, that's a that's a step back into a kind of world of the polite, the cle- the clever, the the you know the inventive. I'm trying to try to discourage a little bit that muscle, so that something else more simple, something sweeter can be present that's really just about like i said before it's just about hope it's just about your hope you lead with your hope you know be ready for the disaster that's coming but still lead with your hope it sort of feels like we exactly where we are right now what we need right now <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> yeah man i found i miss theater so much yeah like i i see a lot of theater and i i was sort of almost feeling like uh i'm, I'm kind of sick of you know, schlepping to Manhattan every week, but like, man, I miss it. It's theater's the best. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, there's always the potential of magic. Yeah. And it doesn't happen, you know, 10% of the time, but, but you know, it, it, even just those moments when it does make it totally worth it. Yeah. It comes in flashes. Um, so we talked a little bit about clowning and, and acting, and it seems like, it seems very intuitive how this kind of philosophy of clown could translate into forms of theater where there's a really direct relationship with the audience, you know, like mm-hmm. Shakespeare and yeah. Brecht and, you know, Aristophanes, Moliere. Um, do you feel like uh, th- these techniques can be useful if somebody is doing like a, like a Chekhov play or something, like a pretty naturalistic kind of thing? Oh, I think Chekhov is full of clowns. Full of clowns. Um, I also feel like for me in terms, I've been, you know, I've been training actors for God forever. Um, and it always feels to me like everything starts from the clown. It takes a while to find it. It takes a while to begin to drop into the training. Generally in the second year of grad school, you can drop into it. Um, but I think everything starts with the clown. You have one, like you said before, but thousands of characters can come from that clown and you can use it full on all the way to the red nose, or you can use 10% of it or 5% of it for your Wendy's commercial audition you know um yeah but because it's you because it's this this active playful um creature that's that's really full of physically physical listening you know um then it can go anywhere and i really feel like the the the, our main job as actors at a certain point at the end of the day is to be able to forget that we ever rehearsed and just listen yeah and just be present in that in that moment what kind of active playful listening you know and, and that's yeah. all that's all about the clown that's all that's about the clown training that you can use in everything yeah cool i i was having a, a kind of difficult time thinking getting my head around the idea of having one clown but you know thousands of characters coming out of that but then i thought about charlie chaplin and mm-hmm. he's always the same clown whether he's you know the little tramp or hitler mm-hmm. yeah well about yeah by the time he gets we get to modern times we see him begin to shift a little bit he's still he you know he's still that character um, yeah. that he created 
uh, and it's really character, but also clearly attached to something profound about him. Yeah. You know, you look at people yeah, like Will, like Will, I think Will I think Will Ferrell's a great example. Like he can take that the, the character from Elf, which felt just like you know, right on the money, and to yeah. into all of his movies, but just use it a little bit this way, a little bit that way, maybe a little bit more this. You know, he's a beautiful example of someone who's sort of always in it, but not always using it a hundred percent. I think he's so good. I think he's Will so Ferrell's good. amazing. Yeah, I do. I, I feel like all of his characters are like people who think they're a couple steps higher in status than they actually are, or like yeah. whose status has outstripped their competence. Yeah. And that is just always going to be funny to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, funny. that's yeah. Don Quixote. That's, you know. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. I, I think he would be a, I think, you know, if Terry Gilliam ever makes this Don Quixote movie, I think Will Ferrell would be a, a great, uh, great casting choice. Yeah. No, he's, he's, he's brilliant. That guy. Um, are there, are there other, uh, sort of contemporary actors that you think are, are, you know, in, in line with this clown idea? Um, sure. I mean, a lot of those, those Judd Apatow movies have elements of that. I think they're kind of simple. They're, they're vulnerable. They're, um, sort of naive. Um, and are, are they, they're naive, but they pretend they're not naive. Uh, you know, and that, and then and then there's a fine line between what the world of the clown is and then what the world of commedia becomes. Right? Commedia has yeah. all these archetypes, and that's also a lot of what I teach is how you how you fill those archetypes and how you play those different masks. But um, it's always for me. It always starts with clown. It's got to start with clown before you can because commedia. Yeah, commedia is sort of about you know the socialized self, right? Yeah, it's about it's you know it's the it's what the clowns would be if God forbid they ever grew up. Yeah, because they have appetite. They have sexual appetite. They have appetite for wealth and 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 food and all kinds of things that the clowns don't have. But um, they but the world of commedia, particularly in the Harlequino or the Smeraldina characters or the, any of the Zani, they have this beautiful simplicity and they live in their bodies without filter, um, and, and they're incredibly expressive uh, creatures. But also, you know, kind of they have they have appetite to them that the clown doesn't quite. have. The, the clown, clown think, seems to, yeah. What does the clown want? I, well, I think that, you know, I think the clown comes from a very poetic place. Personally, I think the clown comes from a place way back in our imagination that, where they live backstage, um, where they, where everything is just a little bit more beautiful and fun and sparkly and scary and all these things. And they come from that world of our imagination uh, out onto the stage and they're kind of the messenger from there, you know, but there's something poetic about that for me. That's, that's different from Commedia. Commedia has its own kind of poetic, uh, kind of resonance but i think the clown himself comes from a deeply poetic place you you, you talk a couple of times in your book about uh, comparing the clown to children mm-hmm. like little little kids and, mm-hmm. but but not that's not the sort of main emphasis what do you feel like what are the similarities and what are the differences there uh well i think they have that they, they're beautifully naive they're vulnerable the way we used to be uh, or that we've covered, you know, they have a kind of beautiful logic before they figured out how the world works. Um, and, and there are a couple of examples of just, you know, when I was writing the book and my kids were growing up that are kind of connected to that idea of what clown logic is. And, um, if you just kind of squint at it a little bit and maybe you don't really know how that toaster works, they're not really sure what that thing is for. Um, what, what, what would you discover? You know, why is that? What if you've never seen anybody work a water fountain before? What the hell? 
is that yeah. thing attached to the wall, you know, and then you find out, Oh, it's for this. It's for that. You know, um, it's a game. You can splash things around, you know, if you don't know what things are and you, and you allow yourself to discover the world the way, the way we did when we were little, um, without necessarily solving any of those problems. Um, then you begin to find something, something super, super sweet. And something that also goes back to this idea of our bodies. Remember when, when we used to live like that, right. When we were little like that and discovering the world and trying to, we're surfing gravity, trying to confront great dealing with gravity, you know, which is we all do when we learn to walk is just like, I'm surfing the planet now trying to figure out how I can negotiate with gravity itself. It's so amazing. Yeah. Go ahead. Like seeing little kids run is like the best. There's like so much like wasted energy, just wildly flailing their arms and stuff. Yeah. Cause they don't care how they look. Yeah. They just want that. They just want that apple. You know, they want that ball. They want that toy. And so they don't give, they don't give a damn what they look like. This is a, a little personal, but did, did having kids sort of refresh your sense of that clown-like uh, playfulness and innocence? Absolutely. And, you know, we, we tried, we tried some different sort of parenting things to maybe try to keep them, keep them uh, sheltered from some of the world. And it didn't really work out so great. You know, they, because they would then get with their friends and their friends would be like, what do you, they, they would start getting teased about it too. And you're like, uh Oh yeah. You know, um, which we, we, but, but they reminded me for sure of, um, of how to think about the world without so much solution, without so much cynicism. Um, not that I'm a particularly cynical person, but it, that just, you know, we get, we get tired of, of doing, going to battle every day. You know, and uh, there's an appetite when we're when we're little that refuses to admit that there's not a possibility of more fun, and that was beautifully refreshing to me. Yeah, how else do you keep that sense of fun alive? I mean, you've you've been clowning for quite some time, and uh, mm-hmm. what do you do to kind of keep that fresh? Um, well, you know, I give my students some homework. There's a place. There's there's some homework I just I just read in the book, and so that homework. Uh, uh, from from the beauty of chaos and afterward, um, I try to f- I try to find ways um, to I guess to not sit down so much to try to stay awake in my body to try to um, lean into something that might be just a little bit more fun um, and also I you know I'm fed I, I get fed by my students I, I for me to really get in there and help them on their journey to discovering their clown and the world of the clown, the comic world itself, um, it, it, their struggle fuels me and, and forces me to, uh, to lean into them and say, okay, where are you? And when we find it, when we find their name or we find this little beautiful, simple moment, uh, it, it, it energizes me in a really beautiful way. Um, one of the things that I've started to do now just recently, which has been really, really helpful, has been trying to figure out what to do in the midst of this global pandemic, since we can't be in the same room with other people anymore for a good long time. Um, I started thinking about how I could do this work remotely. And some of my friends, some of my, my, the people who have apprenticed with me, my friends uh, are doing it, finding ways to do it with everybody in a different room. And I haven't quite figured it out yet because the, the Zoom is so laggy. It's hard to tell where the timing is. And it's everybody laughs at a different time. And, um, so it's tricky, but I'm working it out. And so what I've decided to do is, um, I was thinking about how I can build a, 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 something particular that's just for 
this new remote medium that we're living in. And what I decided to do was start a, a laughing club, um, which is based on the laughing laughter yoga um, that started by was started by this doctor in India. And to take portions of my clown warm up and my my uh, some, some of the other uh, games of discovery that I've been doing for a while, and we get together um, on the Zoom and we we laugh. We just laugh for about half an hour. And sometimes that laughter will tip into tears, which is very natural right now. And then back to laughter. Um, and it's incredibly therapeutic. It, it's great for the immune system. It's great for, it's like a natural antidepressant. And um, we find little ways to trigger it. But um, right now that's, that's what I'm doing. And that's incredibly uh, fueling for me too, to see these, these people who are, you know, some people are with their families in lockdown. Some people are by themselves. You know, they have no partner. They, they, you know, they can't go and see their friends, you know, um, and to see these beautiful little faces sort of pop up on the screen, just like, please, please, can we just remember what it feels like to laugh for a bit and purge some of this toxic junk that's just in the system. And, um, people, people seem to be really, really excited about it. So that's kind of my new, that's where I'm going right now. It's the only place I can go, but it feels yeah. really, I have one and I, that's the thing I have to do at one o'clock today. Um, Gonna you got to do your laughing, laughing, club. laughing club. I have a laughing club coming up. Yeah. You should That's jump so in. Great. You should jump in sometime and see how, see if you like it. Sure. I'd love to. That sounds great. Yeah. That's, I mean, like a half an hour is a long time to laugh. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And it, it does it sort of take on its own rhythm, uh, its own momentum after a while. Yeah. Because you're also, you know, if, if, if people are on their headphones, they're lying on their back on the floor, the, the diaphragm is open, their knees are kind of up in the air and their feet are flat on the floor. They can really get it. You know, they have to push a little bit to get there. It has to be a little bit synthetic for a minute maybe, but then that maybe is going to roll into, into a, another big surprise, or you can hear someone else just having a huge chuckle about nothing. And that's going to fuel yeah. your laughter. And then you hear someone break down and have a little cry time, you know, <laughs> and maybe that's going to encourage you to go there too and purge some of that toxic energy Right. Cause I really, I'm, I'm convinced that, that the laughter and the tears are, they're, they're uncomfortable roommates, but they're still roommates. You know, they, they have the, the muscle that, that makes the sound is the same. Right. And they're seconds away from each other. But, but if you're trying to hold down, if you're trying to hold down your melancholy or your despair, or your tears, that way you're never going to really be able to get to the full belly laugh. That's just full of delight and pleasure. Um, if, unless you welcome them both. Right. And yeah, I was, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I was uh, reminded by your book of the Joni Mitchell lyric where she says, laughing and crying, you know, it's the same release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so do you feel like that extends to a, a, a bigger sort of genre question of like, what's the relationship between like comedy and tragedy? Like, could you be a clown in Antigone? Sure, sure you can. I think without the possibility of tragedy, there's no clown to be found. Because yeah. it means you don't care. The more you care, the more you care, the more the possibility of tragedy. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. And also, the clown doesn't have any. It doesn't have a. This is not like oh, the clown looks like this. This is what the clown has to look like. The clown is is elastic and it's and it can be fluid and can show itself in 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 many different ways. You know, there. I think I think the the, the greatest Richard the Thirds I've ever seen are the ones that are sort of done by clowns. Yeah. Um, there's so much pleasure in, in, in how smart they are and what they're doing, you know? Ooh. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. The Shakespeare villains are all kind of clowny, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Iago, I think it's, you know, a very clown-like character too. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. Um, so you, you talk about how the clown can kind of inhabit, it doesn't look like any one thing. Uh, though in your book, you do kind of insist on the red nose for yeah. when you're sort of doing proper clown. Yes. But you don't want to do it. You don't want a rainbow wig or, uh, you know, crazy makeup or anything like that. No. no so what's hard. what's so important about the red clown? The red, the nose? red nose. The red nose yeah. is a mask. It's a mask. It's a, and you have to play it like a mask, right? And the thing about a mask is the, the moment that you know it's being played properly is the moment that you no longer notice it, right? It's just this beautiful creature coming around the corner. The same with comedian masks. The same with larval masks are, are neutral masks, um, when you know that mask is alive, you don't notice the mask anymore. And so the clown, the clown knows uh, what it does is it softens the face. It helps to soften the brain, to soften the eyes. Um, and it brings everything to a kind of bullseye right in the middle of your face, right? Uh, into this little round red thing. That's a focal point, you know? And, you know, if you're wearing a red shirt, the clown nose doesn't work so well. <laughs> but if you're not, yeah. wearing, if you're not wearing a, that color red, the color red pulls your eye instantly to the eyes and to the softness of the face. And it's the same. And, and once you, once you know how to play a mask uh, and again, any kind of mask work, once you know how to play a mask and you know how the body can get under it and support it physically, you can take the mask away. You don't need it anymore. Yeah. Cause you already have the muscles that it takes to achieve that. So I'm ambitious. I'm ambitious in terms of being able to, to play fully into the red nose so that when you have that muscle, you can relax it down afterwards. Does that make sense? There's a picture. Yeah. There's a picture at the end of the book of a, a class uh, at the funny school of good acting and everyone's wearing their red noses and it yeah. looks great. <laughs> yeah. It's so, it's so iconic. And uh, do you feel like part of it too, is that when an audience sees someone with a red nose, they're immediately like, Oh, that's a clown. Like it sets expectations. In some ways. And I think also there's, there's cultural and, and, and community differences along the way. You know, I think in, in Europe, there's a very different relationship to the world of the clown than there is in the United States. And in America, there is a, you know, we have this kind of stigma of the bozo, uh, the crusty, the clown, the, uh, it, you know, Pennywise or whatever, yeah. you know, that we have the creepy ones. And then we have the really horrible, kind of saccharine ones uh, and then there's the cigar smoking cynical one you know so we have that culturally in in our in our sort of lexicon when it's attached to the world the word clown and i think it's really different uh in european countries they just don't have that in the same way yeah so particularly in france there's you know there's all that ennui about the clown and, and the poetry of it and um but and we have circus clown too that's you know and birthday party clowns right and people go oh god but um, if you can bring that clown with that nose stripped down, then I think there's, uh, there's a whole nother discussion that can begin to happen that's not necessarily attached to that. That's so it seems that, like that dynamic, you know. So, so how do you, I mean, how do you get around all of that? You mentioned, you know, five or six different types of clown that are not the thing you do. How do you kind of get around that set of expectations, right? I mean, yeah. people think clown, at least in this country, they, they do think about, you know, circus clowns or Ronald McDonald or something. How do yeah. you, how do you yeah. get them to sort of forget that? Well, I, I think in the acting world, we, we know that there's something more interesting than that. You know, in the world of the theater, we know we, the word clown means something else to us. So when actors come in search of that, they know. I think that 
we're, we're going to go on a little adventure and we're going to go on a, a deeper investigation. It's not connected to juggling and it's not connected to magic tricks or how you twist the balloon, you know, which for me have nothing to do with the clown necessarily at all. Um, they can accidentally, right? That's fine. But um, I, th- I think the way that we get past that stigma and, that, and, the, and the strange sort of shadow of uh, the American idea of what, what circus clown party clown, all that stuff is, is by showing, is by showing it. Yeah. Uh, you know, here comes this thing. Oh my God, I've never seen anything like this. Oh, you know, the first thought is, oh shit, here comes a clown, right? Which is obviously when we say that, we say it in a pejorative way. Um, yeah. But, you know, even when I, I've been teaching a lot in China recently and they don't have a word for clown that's not a, a, an insult. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so I think we have a little they bit. They have of, clown. There, there are clown like characters in the Chinese opera, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying. Is that a helpful of, context? Yeah, sure. Sure. But I just mean that, you know, the same way that we call someone a clown here. You know, who's yeah. that clown over there driving around? He's not even have a. He's, he's not giving me six feet social distance. What clown is that? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Um, so, I mean, that's just part of that's part of the culture, and you're not yeah. going to really be able to change that. But if you just see someone really beautiful come out who's wearing a red nose, or maybe not wearing a red nose, you know, like I said, you can take the nose away if you know how to play it. Then you're still going to have the yeah. muscles that it takes to find the clown. Um. This is maybe kind of a dumb question, uh, but oh, so good. you teach at, you, you still teach at Yale. Is that true? That's my, that's my full-time job. Yeah. That's your full-time job is teaching it. Uh, uh, and Yale is Yale. Like Yale mm-hmm. is, you know, the sort of uh, citadel of intellectualism. What's it like to bring this art form, this kind of pre-intellectual into that, into those uh, hollowed halls? Well, I'm the head of physical acting at the Yale School of Drama, which is a really different um, yeah. dynamic, you know, it's the grad school there. Um, and there's lots of, there's lots of physical work in the, in the training, uh, grad school training. There's lots of, um, and I, I do climb with them for a year and then I do comedia with them for a, for a semester. And then we make a show together. And the dynamic with that is very, very different when you're in grad school, because as opposed to undergrad, which I also teach occasionally, which I find more challenging ultimately because I think those students are there for different reasons. You know, people come to grad school have maybe been out for a while. They know what they're after. They want to be professionals. They want, they have an appetite to learn. They have an appetite to, to, to do something courageous and to kind of rediscover uh, their talent in a certain way over the three years that they're in grad school. And I think undergrads are, it's very different because they're, you know, they're going to lectures, they're doing all kinds of other things. They're not really there to, uh, as a kind of pre-professional, they're, they're there to investigate something entirely different and the stakes are different, you know? So I do feel that I do feel that more in the undergrad dynamic than I do in the grad school. Yeah. It, that's where we feel a little bit hallowed halls. That's because they're so smart too. The undergrad right. is so smart, you know, yeah. they get the best grades ever and they want to get, yeah. you know, how could you possibly get a B plus? <laughs> you know? And that seems that, that design, I mean, you know, kids get into Yale because they're really good at school yeah. and they're really good at like doing, doing the thing that the teacher wants them to do. Yeah. And, and you know, they're also probably brilliant and do other things in their, you know, in extracurricular time, but, but you kind of have to be really good at, at school. Uh, and is that part of the challenge that they want to know, like, what's the right way to do it? And yeah. the whole point of what you do is kind of, there's not, I, I can't tell you. Yeah. There's no right way. You show me, you show me your right yeah. way. And yeah, it's completely counter to every other dynamic, in every part of their life. <laughs> yeah. Up until that moment. 
possibly, you know. Um, there's one other uh, thing, a sort of clown trope I want to talk about a little, which is the clown names. Uh-huh. And you give a list of them in the book, and it's yeah. so great. The, the <laughs> names are, uh, I love all of them. Some kind of little wet biscuit. That's oh, yeah. great. Yeah. I love that. Some kind of little wet biscuit. Fatty fat crybaby Keith. That's yeah. great. Oh, yeah. Um, it's just tater. There's one that's tater. just tater. There's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Sweet, sweet potato fruity. Sweet potato fruity. Sweet potato good fruity. That's good. I like one lonely bean. Oh, yeah. One lonely bean. One I could just read all. I mean, one leftover I won't. Cupcake. But I... One leftover cupcake. He's a good friend of mine. <laughs> one leftover cupcake is great. How do you like... What's the, I mean, it seems like there's, you know, a sensibility behind these. How do you come up with the, how does, how do you find a clown name? I don't know. <laughs> Great. Next question. I don't know. Uh, but well, I, you got to poke, well, I mean, not, you have to poke at it and you're like, this person has yeah. a dynamic that's sort of like that. And maybe they're a little bit this way or they're a little pokey or they're a little pinched or this one's just a little, maybe a little chubby or this one, you know, I can tell they like sweets a little too much. Right. Or this one's, this one's scared uh, uh, of their body, you know, this one's really, you know, aggressive. And, and do I want to encourage that? What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to flag something that we love about that person. Yeah. And I can't do it by myself. If, if the, if the audience doesn't laugh, if the other students don't laugh, it's not right. It's never right if they don't laugh. And sometimes you nail it, bang. And sometimes you have to search for it. Sometimes it takes 20 minutes. You know, sometimes it takes, you know, I have people that, that i still need to rename because they've changed. And are you, it's a change. And and are you guys are you going back and forth with them? Are they pitching names or is it or are you you sort of grant them the name? Well, I like when they fight with me a little bit. And particularly the yeah. the, the sound that they make and you know you're on the right track when somebody goes, Oh no, please not that. That's when not you know some kind of little wet biscuit. Yeah, yeah, you know you're right on the right track when you get me some kind of little wet and they cry a little bit. You're like, that's where you're a little wet biscuit because you you're a crybaby. <laughs> yeah, great. So, so they do. Students do sometimes get kind. Of, I mean, I in middle school, I got a reputation as being a guy who would give people nicknames, uh-huh. and this went on for about a week before I gave someone a nickname they really hated, uh-huh. and then I got in trouble for it. Mm-hmm. Does that happen? I mean, obviously, you don't get in trouble. You're the head of physical theater at the Yale School of Drama. Yeah. But uh, but do people get upset? Does that happen? They can. They can get upset if they if they're see if they all of a sudden we see something about them that they're not so fond of. Or they've been trying to bury, you know, but that's that whole, that's that whole dynamic of it. We're trying to name the thing that we think is funny about you, not the thing that you want to be funny about you. And they're sometimes they're the same, but not very often. Yeah. Mostly they're different. And, and that's why it has to be a class, right? Cause you need to have that instant audience uh, feedback of do something and does it work? You kind of road test it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. We laugh. We don't laugh. You find out right away. We don't sort of, you know, sometimes, sometimes you get pity laugh. And then I'll say, well, that's yeah. just a pity laugh. And they're like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst. The worst is the, the pity, pity laugh. Pity well, laugh silence is, is pretty so... bad, too. Silence is worse than the pity laugh, I think. Yeah. But also with the silence, you go, you can have a little tragedy about it. With the pity laugh, you're not sure. Yeah. Um, so that brings me. Uh, so I, I hope this is it's clear that I really enjoyed reading your book. But uh, yeah. you just mentioned that, uh, you know, you do kind of need to be in the room to be able to really do this. So why yes. did you write a book about clowning? Um, well, because people would always come up to me and ask me what books I could recommend about how to talk about clown. And so I was like, there's some interesting books out there, but not the book that I want them to have. 
so I kind of had to do it. And it took me about 15 years because I would get so bored of myself um, that I just couldn't get it down the right way. And finally, I kind of, a couple of years ago, I was like, okay, let's go. Let's have a look at this. And I actually, I started to, maybe I became a better writer over time or I became more articulate to myself and how I wanted to do it. But I actually began to really like the process of sitting down and writing about it. I was like, yeah, that's, that's, and I can say to you, you want a book about clown here, look at that. Cool. So it's sort of that Toni Morrison thing of you wrote the book that you wanted to read, but you couldn't find. Perhaps. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, was, is a lot of the stuff in your book stuff that you've said in your classes? Yeah. It's, it's all in my voice. Yeah. From teaching. Yeah. Um, a lot of it came from transcriptions too. My friend Orlando Poboto, who was my first apprentice, um, did a lot of documenting uh, classes and then he tried to transcribe them. So a lot of it's from that. A lot of it's me going back and go, I talk about it this way now. So I'm going to put it exactly the way I talk about it in class, which is pretty codified at a certain point. Yeah. I mean, you may have heard me say things that are directly from the book today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one, one sentence from the book that I really loved, I want to get this like crocheted on a pillow, is you say, inspiration lies at the very brink of disaster. Mm, good one. That's, that's, that's nice. That's a good bit of business there. Do you want to kind of talk about what you mean by that a little bit? Well, it means there's a risk involved. You know what I mean? You got you to gotta risk something. You got to take a chance. And you got to take a big chance. You can have a small tragedy. You can have a small success, right? If you want a big triumph, you have to also have the possibility of a big disaster. You know, it's like watching someone walk on a tightrope. If, if the tightrope is, is an inch off the ground, it's not particularly interesting. You know? Yeah. You want to get up high, take a chance, risk something. Yeah. Risk and fail, fail better, fail again, fail better. Because there's something I think is interesting in the tragedy and then the failure as there is in the triumph. And, you know, like I said, you want a big triumph, you got to go up over the top, man. You know that expression, that right? seems... over, the, over the top? Uh, yeah, I do. I don't, does it have an interesting revealing origin? Yeah, it's from World War I. Oh, wow. Right? And the guys are in the trenches, right? And you could either yeah. go, go up out of that trench into battle with the possibility of triumph and, and success, or you stay down in there. Yeah. And certainly you will have a tragedy. <laughs> But also going up over the top then becomes an act of courage rather than just a way of talking about bad acting or too much. Oh, so that's actually where when people say, that that was a little over the top. That's kind of where that comes from? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. They don't don't know the origin of it. It's become to be, it's, you know, it's become a phrase about bad acting. And and I, I prefer to cling to the idea that it's actually an act of courage to go over the top. Yeah. You don't stay in the gray zone. There's certain... There's there's good bad acting too, right? I mean, there's bad acting that is that is sort uh, of I don't know histrionic or something, but that is still really compelling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Nathan Lane's a king of that. He can go really far. And so oh if yeah. It's, if it's still connected, you know, if it's still attached to something and not uh, just an idea of how to be clever or how to, you know, I think he's kind of brilliant about that like that. Oh yeah. And he seems like a guy who's who's kind of found his clown. There's like a Nathan Lane clown that he kind of brings into all of his all of his roles. Yeah. 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 And that's yeah, and it goes into every character, right? But that's him yeah. because he feels he knows himself so well. Um Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um do you, do you want me to read this last sure, chapter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's Latin read this last, this last shortly. shortly. 
Okay, it's hard for me to see it on this page. Oh, here we go. Oh, the beauty of yeah. chaos and afterward. You ready? My greatest wish is that we can have a more playful theater, a theater without so much math or formula, a theater full of imagination, full of poetry, tragedy, inspiration, and great beauty. I want to laugh more when I go to the theater. I want to be astonished by the logic of nonsense and by the blistering ferocity of passion expressed without worry and given away with complete and hilarious abandon. I love to see actors surprised by their talent. The theater is a live event and dangerous by its very nature. It should be. That's what's thrilling about it. How do we capture the, that beauty of chaos and the thrill of pandemonium that is so full of life and possibility? I think that we must try valiantly to give the theater back to the curious, inspired, and virtuosic actor, as it was for so many hundreds of years. It was full of pleasure and prepared for the dangerous and extraordinary conversation that the theater yeah, can be. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, are there, are there things that you've seen in the last, uh, you know, three or four years where you're sort of like, yes, that, that's what I'm, that's what I'm pointing towards. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in terms of live theater, um, I have to say quite honestly, not so much. I don't, I don't, I don't go see a lot of live theater because, um, yeah. I'm in the classroom most of the day, you know, uh, and working with and, I'm, and I go to, I have to see all my student shows. So sometimes, um, you know, when I see somebody particularly inventive or someone who's kind of relaxed a little bit into something less desperate, um, I, I, like I said, I, I, I see it in flashes sometimes. Uh, and that's inspiring to me. Um, but also as a theater director, I'm, I'm, I'm also, you know, try, I, I don't know what the best way to say this is, but it's my job, right? It's not for me entertainment. Yeah in the same way as it used to be, right? Because it's my job. And so um, I, I hope there'll, there'll come a time when I'm, also it's amazingly yeah. expensive not to, to go to the theater, you know, that um, I, go, I go less and less and something, unless something really special comes along. Yeah. Uh, and I'm waiting for that. You know, I love Slava Snow Show. I love, I love a lot of things, uh, but, like I said, it's it's hard for me to sit back and 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 just take it in when I've been in the classroom all day. Yeah. You know, I've been in rehearsal all day. I uh, I spent a lot Very of time growing time. up in uh, like punk rock venues, and there was a guy who ran one of the venues. And mm -hmm. you know, when I was like sixteen, I went up to him, you know, between bands at a show, and I was like, "Man, you have the best job in the world. You just get to like watch punk bands every night. That's amazing." And he just goes, "Yeah, I don't know. Everything <laughs> becomes a job after a while." <laughs> yeah yeah if you had yeah. to do that every night it's going to stop reason. being so fun before long you know yeah yeah um, but i like do you the have analogy. any parting thoughts you want to leave us with uh no not at the moment uh you know i gotta go upstairs and and plug in and, right. and laugh for for an hour right now and i recommend it uh it's really really yeah it feels really really good to, to kind of outrun your worry for a minute and outrun your panic and outrun your dread and your despair for a second. And, you know, if this is going on for a while, I don't know when you're going to post this, this podcast, but I'd love to see you in the, in the laughing club at some point, go to the pandemonium studio.com and look at the laughing club, see if it's something you want to get on. Yeah. Cause I feel like we're going to be inside for a yeah, little while. Sure. <laughs> we can't get in the room for a little while, but 
But that's the name of my new school. It's not the funny school of good acting right. anymore. It's called the Pandemonium Studio. Um, so visit that and all right. Thanks so much fun, for man. being on the program today, Christopher. You bet. Thank you. Thank you.